Hey folks, Dr. Ed Williams here, your uh, business mentor for aesthetic business. Um, today, I'm going to talk about, you know, I'm very passionate about teaching doctors and other healthcare professionals about aesthetic business. I have a website. It's Dr. Ed Williams, edwinwilliams.com. Uh, and uh, we wrote the White Coat Entrepreneur to help Young professionals try to understand and navigate the water of aesthetic business. But today, I'm going to talk about something that's near and dear to me and is also near and dear to so many of my colleagues. Um, and it's something we all struggle with. You know, how do we raise financially responsible children? You know, so why is this an important topic? And why do I get asked this from colleagues of mine uh, from time to time? Well, there's enough data to show that when people are financially responsible, they have higher self-worth and self-esteem. In fact, there's data to show that the healthiest families are fiscally responsible. I'm known for giving people homework. So I'm going to tell you, if you haven't read The Millionaire Next Door, the book was written over 20 years ago. It is still very relevant today. and is backed up by all kinds of data on raising financially responsible children um, and the dynamics, how screwed up the dynamics are in families when there are uh, finances tied to relationships. Um, let's just think about retirement for a minute. Do you want to continue to take care of your kids into retirement age or when they're 30 and 35 and 40? I mean, that's another good reason to raise financially uh, depend, uh, independent kids, right? And quite frankly, raising uh, people that are not financially dependent is not sustainable because you have to continue to take care of them and that will not go on for generation and generation. You know, I find it interesting that when you look at first generations that come into this country, many times they work, they scrap their way to the top. And, and again, this data is backed up in The Millionaire Next Door. And what they try to do, they really want their kids to get an education. In fact, what they really want is their kids to become professionals. And statistically, this happens in a disproportionately greater number of uh, second generation kids from successful small business people. But then what happens is we soften, you know, we soften because we don't want to see our kids um, suffer or have pain. And I think that successful physicians fit right into that category. You know, we don't want to see our kids, you know, work so hard like we did, right? I mean, I said this to one of my, when my daughter Kate was at 16, my, my, uh, my, one of my fellows at the time, I said to him, cause she just announced that she wanted to be a doctor. And I was like, really, I don't know that, that I really want to see her do this and go down this road and work so hard. But, you know, my fellow at the time said to me, he goes, you know, Dr. Williams, you got to do something in your 20s. Might as well go to medical school or something. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, we don't want to see our kids work so hard necessarily. You know, we become so, so soft as a society. I think once we've had a degree of success uh, and as a successful adult, and so we want to make things a little easier sometimes for the next generation. And then there are those people, you know, we all know them, friends of ours, who honestly, I think that they 
they like to foster some of the dependency of their children. Um, you know, we had four kids, so, you know, it, it's not sustainable to continue to take care of them forever. It's important to get them to take care of themselves at some point. In fact, there's a guy I follow. Uh, he has the Bell Leadership Institute. He's studied over 30,000 people through life. And do you know what he found is the number one thing that correlates most highly with happiness and fulfillment? And that is it's inversely re- inversely proportional to the age that people start working. In other words, when people start working at 10, 11, and 12, they have a greater likelihood of being happy in life. And that kind of makes sense, you know, because there's there's fulfillment, there's self-worth, all those things. So his data really does um, bear out uh, some of these conclusions. So strategically, how do you teach kids to become financially independent? Well, one is they have to learn how to manage money, including the failures associated with bad decisions, right? That's number one. Number two, there should be some shared responsibilities. This is part of learning. As they grow up and as they get older, obviously a 10-year-old can't pay their own way, right? But as they get older, sharing responsibility with them um, and shifting that over to them becomes important into adulthood. You can't expect them to all of a sudden at the age of 18 to 20 to be responsible. There needs to be shifted and shared responsibility. So that's my number two. And number three, you need to have conversations about money. You know, I talked to my wife and, and, you know, she, no one talked about money growing up. Everyone knew that money was kind of tight, but no one talked about it. And when she became an adult, she really had to struggle to figure it all out, um, uh, you know, including going into debt and those type of things. And I've talked to friends of mine, you know, my, my dad, because he was a small businessman, we talked about it and, you know, there was no hangups about it, but we talked about it and it was part of the education process. So when do you, when do you begin this? Now, I'm not telling you what you should do. I'm telling you what worked for me. And I didn't make this stuff up. I, I actually read some books on it, like, cause I was concerned about it. I did. I, I wanted my kids to be financially responsible. So what I did was, um, you know, you start to between about the ages of five and 12, you start to give them the opportunity to uh, learn how to save learn how to separate money, save, and learn how to spend, and learn how to fail. So what I did is is we gave our kids, and they each had notebooks. When they got to be about five years of age, they had a notebook. And in the notebook, we gave them um, a dollar a week for their allowance uh, per year old at the age that they were. So a five-year-old got $5 a week. That sounds like a lot of money, right? But it isn't when you hear how I do this or how we did it. Um, Because then, you know, so if you're five years old, you're giving your kids 250 bucks for that year. Now, here's the deal. In the notebook, half has to go to the bank. So there's two columns. So if I settle up once a month, say you get the 20 bucks, 10 goes into the one column. It has to be saved for college and it has to be saved for college spending. We talk about that. And the other half um, is what they can spend. Now, I had them settle up with me each quarter. 
So January 15th, April 15th, June 15th, and September 15th, they had to give me the money that they put aside for their college. So let me give you an example. We get to March 15th, um, and then the money from the firm from January, and people, or excuse me, April 15th. And people would say to me, why do you do it on those dates? Because that's what the real world does. Anyone who runs a business has to pay their taxes quarterly. You know, and so I remember my wife not really agreeing with me on this. You know, she didn't agree that, you know, that their allowance money that they, you know, should have to save half of it. Um, she thought I was kind of unfair. And I said, look, uh, they have no expenses in life. They have no taxes in life. They have to learn how to save. So at the end of each quarter, you know, March 15th, let's just say we've had what, you know, okay, so $5 a week and say there's one, there's three, four, there's uh, 12, right? Uh, four, eight, 12 uh, times 560. So $30 would have to be given to me and I would deposit that in their bank account. And that's not to be touched ever. That's for college spending. And they know that they have to save their money for college spending. Now, then with the other money that they have, that other 30, you know, that's, and that's theirs to spend. Um, there's a couple rules that, and I didn't, like I said, I didn't read, make this up. I actually read a book about this and I thought it was a great system. I tried it and it worked, but I'll, I'll tell you how, why it's important because down in later in life, they learn how to manage money. So here's the thing is I never really tied chores. I mean, chores were expected, you know, I mean, I had consequences, you know, you don't make your bed, you know, you don't make your bed and you, you, you want to go somewhere this weekend. It's not happening. Uh, but I never really, we never really tied chores to me, to the money uh, The basically the money was allowance because you can't work right now. You're too young to work. Um, so they banked half of the money and then half of the money was theirs to spend. Now, what kind of things do you let them buy, you know, with, with their money? Well, if they wanted to buy something, um, you know, they, they could use their money. Uh, other things like, for example, the kids would come up and say, you know, dad, can I have money for a water bottle? I'm like, um, I'm sorry, I don't buy water. You want to buy a water, you want to buy a water bottle, you bring your money. And, and I was, you know, we were pretty adamant about that. I mean, obviously if my daughter's coming off the basketball court and she didn't forgot her water, I'm going to go get a water bottle. But, you know, stopping at the store, they want to buy gum or they want to do, you know, anything along those lines or basically anything you might not necessarily buy with your own money and you think may be frivolous is what I would expect them to buy. You want to buy a magazine and you're 14 years old or 13 and you want to buy People magazine? Have at it, man. But don't ask me to. Uh, and what happens is you'll start to see a behavior uh, whereby they're like, well, I, I don't, I'm not spending my money on, on gum. That's, you know, so many, how many, how many dollars a pack? Well, you know, I don't want to spend my money on that. Or, you know, I don't want to, I'll wait till I get home to have some water. You know, other things we had them buy with their own money, quite frankly, are things that they, things where they screwed up, you know, um, my son lost a calculator, you know, it was like the second one he lost, but lose a calculator that we bought once for you, you're buying your own. Um, one year, my son came home with two different shoes. My wife just bought him a new pair of Bates for school. Um, and, uh, you know, a week later, he comes home with two different sizes, okay, and somebody else's shoes. Um, we made him use his own money for that, you know, gifts for friends, a girlfriend or a gift for a birthday party. Not always. I mean, my wife would pick up things, but, but if somebody, you know, 
want it, they want to buy. And, and you can use your discretion on this um, to some degree. The biggest thing to understand here, I think, is that it is important for them to learn how to fail. And you can't say no to them with their own spending. It's their spending money. And they have to have buyer's remorse. Um, so you, you can't tell them no. And they start learning. They have buyer's remorse. They start learning and say, geez, that bottle of water is two bucks. I, I can, you know, I can have water at home or I can put some, make some ice water a different way. So things to know as they get older, you know, because things get more expensive and they want more. And that's why it is important to increase their allowance. For example, a 10 year old, we would give $10 per week, you know, um, throughout the year. So that's $500. It seems like a lot of money, but it's inexpensive in comparison to um, the lessons that they're going to learn by failing, buying something and saying, damn, I shouldn't have spent $35 on that. Um, versus, and the other thing is, you know, half of it's going away for their college spending anyway. And I'll tell you how the end of that story works, uh, which I think is very helpful. So things get more expensive. Um, but eventually they get to be about 10 or 11, 12, and they want some more things. They want, in fact, I used to say the reason I learned how to work is it was so painful to ask my father for money. And my wife will say the same thing, that it was easier to start working. So, you know, your kid wants something and wanted a new pair of ski poles, and you've already had a pair of ski poles and they broke them. That's fine. But, you know, buy your own. And. It, it, the path of least resistance is that they start wanting to work. Now, the rules, once you start working and you can make some money, your allowance goes bye-bye. And usually it's somewhere between 10 and 12 years of age before they get some kind of a you know job where they're making. And I'm not talking about yeah, obviously a full-time job or something, but working summers or, you know, my, my daughter, for example, um, wanted to ride. And, you know, I bought the saddle and bought the horse and nothing crazy, but um, – but I said, you know, horse riding is, uh, you know, horses are what you do when you have money left over. You want to go down that road. That's an expensive. Uh, um, you have to pay for half of your lessons. And so she would work and clean stalls a couple of days a week, uh, half of, uh, and she would pay for half of her lessons. Um, you know, she wanted to upgrade in a saddle. Then, you, you know, you get to save and buy for that because I'm not just buying another, you know, another saddle. So. And that's with their, you know, with the money that they, you know, what they've saved. Now, my approach to college, I'm going to digress a little bit because I think it's, this is part of the end game, right? Kids going to college and learning how to spend money and learning how to save money. So let's, let's just kind of talk about, you know, um, my goals with the kids from 15 to 16. I, I talk to my kids and we talk to them between, actually between, you know, 12 and 16 about money, but around 15 or 16 is when you start talking about, you know, what, what is your main goal here? One is, listen, I, I just so you know, um, part of mom and I, you know, what our deal is, we want you to get, go through college and be, you know, get debt free, get through college debt free. And, you know, fortunately we, we've planned for that. Um, you'll have to pay for all your spending in college and you'll have to pay for your books. And I remember one of our daughters, Riley, you remember saying, dad, is there like a reason you're talking to me about this now? She was about 16. I said, because I don't want any surprises. I don't want you to have any surprises when you go to school. It's important that you understand now because academically, if you do really well and you get some scholarship money, that actually works out for you, not for me. Okay. So 
I told him that, uh, you know, and I also need you to understand that, that this money that we have, and we put the same amount for all of you aside. Um, I am not, we're not paying for you to go to Brown just to say you went to Brown. Because some of these, uh, you know, uh, and I, I know some people disagree with me and on liberal arts education, you got to go find yourself, but I'm not funding that, you know, I'll fund part of it. Um, you know, some people used to say, Paul, you know, uh, what would it cost for a state school, that kind of thing. But, you know, let's face it, if you can put, give a kid through 25, 30,000 bucks toward their education annually versus 70 or 80. I mean, you know, someone's, you know, I always jokingly say that. You know, if my kid had perfect SAT scores, right, and got into Princeton, I'd figure out how to get him there somehow because I'd be that proud of him. But for most kids, you don't owe them uh, the most expensive education that they can find. If they're going to be, you know, and, and nothing, again, nothing against school teaching, but if you're going to be a teacher, I'm not funding a $70,000, $80,000 a year because you're not, the, the ROI is not there. In fact, you know, I look back at my education. I went to a two-year school, transferred to Cornell, scrapped my way there. I didn't have good grades. That's what was hard. I ended up going to a state medical school, um, busted my rear end off to get the residency I, I wanted, killed myself, was fiscally responsible, and I'm probably in better financial shape than 99% of my colleagues or other people that maybe went to Yale or Harvard. Nothing against those schools, you know. But there's something about learning to be fiscally responsible and scrapping. And especially if you're going to be an entrepreneur, be in the aesthetic end of medicine, right? So, you know, I also know one of, one of my friends went to university of Vermont, sold his company. Um, by time he was, uh, before he was 50, walked away with multiple tens of millions of dollars. Another friend of mine sold his company for over, uh, you know, over, um, nine figures, went to University of New Hampshire. So, you know, just because a college that you go to is not going to determine your future. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of us that have harbor a little bit of, I don't want to say guilt, or maybe, you know, we have to keep up with the Joneses. We want to say our kid went to Harvard. I'm not that guy. You know, I think if a kid has that kind of aptitude and has that kind of drive, I'm going to find a way to help them. But we don't owe them because some of the most successful, financially successful people I know didn't have that handed to them. So, you know, I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, and I believe that in, in academics, it's very much like sports. You know, the kids who make it to the Olympics are the ones, in, let's just use a uh, mogul, uh, making it in uh, freestyle, you know, in skiing. They're the ones that are still up on that hill when everyone else is sitting there having, you know, uh, apres ski. They're still up there making that last run. It's starting to get dark. It's snowing sideways, and they're trying to perfect that last little mobile run. Well, it's the same thing in life, you know, in finances. So I don't think just because we put our kid on a silver platter and put them to Harvard, you know, is going to make them more successful than, than someone else. In fact, I tell my kids, we told our kids that, listen, we have the same amount put away for all of you, and when you burn it up, it's gone. You know, we can help you with leftover. We can maybe help you with a wedding. We can maybe help you with a house. But um, we don't, you know, owe you that um, private liberal arts education. And if you want to go that direction, then you can borrow some of that. And so, uh, again, having these conversations early uh, and 
part of it too is having the conversation. And by the time my kids were uh, 18, 19, I had them read The Millionaire Next Door. And I don't want to digress too much, but the, what it really teaches someone, if you read that there are PAWs, the Progressive Accumulators of Wealth, and then there are the Under Accumulators of Wealth. And it really differentiates uh, the two. Um, and uh, the Progressive, the Prodigious Accumulators of Wealth are those who value wealth, their wealth to them is their freedom, okay? The underaccumulators of wealth, the wealth to them are what they're able to show, their showmanship. And there's a big difference. Now, let's just talk about, you know, results briefly here before we go on. I'm going to talk about my four kids, and I'm not, this is not here to say, you know, this is the right way to do it, but I have some results here, anecdotal, albeit, that, that I just want to share with you. So my daughter, Kate's the oldest. She's 29 years old. She went to, she chose to go to C, uh, Siena College, not Harvard. Um, she got through, you know, by the time she went off to school, she had about $12,000 in the bank um, and ended up burning that down to about, you know, burning that down over the years. And here's the thing is once they start to go off to school and they got to spend that money, whether it's on books or savings, the next summer, they don't like the fact that they had eleven to twelve thousand dollars, and now it's eight. Or my one daughter is she was using too much Uber, realizing that she was spending too much, and they have this desire to replenish it the following summer and work summer because they don't like to see that money burned up. So Kate ended up going to Albany Med Medical School. You know, we we had her take out a loan for the first two years of medical school, and we were we were fortunate enough to be able to pay for the second two years. Um, so she does have some some debt. She's a second year ophthalmology resident right now, um, and she's 29 years old. And she and her husband, not by any help of us, they, they saved up to buy a modest little house. Um, and you know, I gave them a leg up on their education, but since the age of 16, she has never, not once, um, and this goes for all my kids, ever asked for money, like spending money, like dad, I'm going away this weekend. Not once. Um, one of my strategies was to, is I told my kids, you know, I will, when you're about, when you're a second year in college, I will give you a car before then. I don't give you, I don't believe in giving kids cars. We'll give you a car uh, that's worth about $15,000. And, you know, I'll help you with expenses until you're, you're on your own, but uh, I'm not buying new cars because where do they go from there if you give your kid a new car i have friends of mine who buy my kids and buy their kids a new car when they go off to college i mean you know and, and the crazy thing is my daughter now when she uh she finally got a new car uh actually it wasn't even a new car it was a newer car a couple of years old um they got married a, a couple of years ago and her mother-in-law gave her a car um that was a couple of years old and you know she said to me she thanked me. She said, thank you, dad, so much for teaching me how to save and teaching me how to live within my means because, you know, Dan and I are saving money. And the biggest thing is I so appreciate that car that my mother-in-law gave me. And I don't think I would appreciate it if I didn't have to drive around in a bomb, you know, for those years. It wasn't a bomb like unsafe, but it was certainly not something that, you know. So when your kids thank you uh, for, for teaching them, to me, that's uh, that success. Um, my daughter Riley is now a graduating senior at Siena College. She's a singer. But the thing I'm most proud about her, and she's a marketing major, is that 
every summer. She's, she's, she's a singer. So she's got these singing gigs, but she hustles. She works two or three jobs. Um, and when she went off to college, she had about 15,000 in the bank, um, every year working very hard to replenish that money. And just about six months ago, she said to me, dad, thank you so much for, you know, making me save, uh, at the time uh, when I was growing up, I always thought it was a pain in the ass that you made me save half my money. But so she and her friends as a senior now are going to go on spring break. And she was like, I, I can't even believe it. Like my friends are like all broke. None of them have any money. And she goes like, I actually have money that I've saved and I don't like spending it, but I can afford to go on this trip. So, you know, when your kids say thank you for teaching them how to, uh, and by the way, Riley has never asked me for money ever. Uh, she doesn't, it's not within her, her DNA and she's a hustler, um, which is something I'm very you know, proud of. Our other daughter, Lydia is 20. She's a sophomore. She worked very hard last summer and the summer before, but she learned some lessons. You know, she worked hard, replenished her money. I don't know how much exactly she's got in the bank, but she, she probably, she last summer, which is her second year of working um, hard all summer. She didn't want to work evenings and didn't want to work weekends because she wanted to have those free. So she took an hourly job. And uh, by the end of the summer, even though she did, she did make a, a good hunk of change was very frustrated because she saw her younger brother and her older sister making a lot more money working odd hours and making money with tips. And so, you know, her conclusion was, first of all, she, you know, she can't believe that so many of her friends, she got annoyed because one of her friends made reference to the fact that she has money, like it was given to her and, and her you know, friend doesn't really work a lot during the summer. And meanwhile, she feels like she works her rear end off. Um, but uh, she's now determined to get a job this summer that has tip money because she realizes now the consequences of making a $13 an hour wage with tips, with taxes being taken out. Um, the fourth child we have, our son is 16. He started making money uh, at about 13 in a restaurant up by the lake. And the story really that led to that is I was a uh, one day uh, buddy, the guy who owns a restaurant, we were in there and he said, Hey, Ed, he goes, I saw, I saw your son out there mowing the lawn. He goes, I, I'm just kind of like, honestly, he goes, that was that your son? I'm like, yeah, you know, Evan was 13 at the time. And he goes, honestly, I'm, I'm impressed. He goes, you know, I just figured, you know, doctor, guy like you, you know, you have a lawn service, whatever. I'm like, no, I got a healthy six, thir six or 13 year old kid. Why, why should I have, you know, a lawn service when my son can mow the lawn? Um, fast forward, you know, last summer was his third summer. Yeah. Third summer working. Um, and working 50 to 70 hours a week and probably, well, I know he does. He's got significantly more than his sisters ever had at that age because he makes a hand over fist there, you know, working a long days and long hours, but you know, uh, really has, he's a, he's a kid who's, you know, really had a tough time. School wasn't meant for him, but he is driven, um, hardworking, and I'm proud of the fact that he works that much. And so, you know, I'll tell you a story to get back to shared responsibility and letting them fail is last year we were skiing out West and he wanted these pair of goggles, ski goggles. And, uh, they were 250 bucks. I don't even remember what they were, but I wasn't buying them. I mean, I'm like, I'm not buying it. Well, he bought them. And about two days later, he set them down and, uh, he forgot him and walked away and then came back like two minutes later and they were gone. 
for three days he was sick over it. Um, but it was his money. You know, it was his money. He felt the pain. Uh, so, you know, I see him now looking at things and, you know, how do I buy this and how do I buy that? So, yeah, I've got friends of mine who have kids in their 30s, um, both of their kids, you know, living at home. I have other another uh, a friend of mine who's got kids in their 30s. They have children. So their children have children and they're on their own and they're still helping their kids out financially with their homes. You know, fine. And, and it's interesting when you talk to them and say, well, you know, it's, it's so hard nowadays for the younger generation to, um, you know, to get established. Uh, I, I go back to the same thing. My kids from the age of, they just, they never asked me for money because they knew that what the answer was going to be. Um, I ran into a friend of mine this past weekend. Their daughter's 25. Their daughter went to a big name school. Um, we're talking, and I don't want to say the name of it, but uh, we're talking $80,000 a year. Uh, I mean, you know, you can't take that away from her because she graduated, but she's worked for a year or two and then back, and now she's back, and she decided to go to, uh, I think, PA school or something. And the parents are giving her $2,700 a month at the age of 25. Um, because she, quote, lives in New York and it's so expensive. Yet I see her pictures on Facebook and Instagram or whatever and doesn't have such a bad life. I mean, the vacations and you name it. So I, I don't want to be that guy. You know, I, I first of all, we have four kids. So I don't think it's, it's healthy for them to be dependent on me. I want them to learn their own self-worth and be independent. And to me, that is what uh, makes me proud. So, you know, some of the strategies, let's get back to what I talk. You know, I, I told you about my kids. And I, again, I'm not doing this to pat myself on the back. I'm telling you that what I did worked because I have kids. Uh, even the 16-year-old is pretty independent financially. But it, strategies are one, learn how to let them manage money on their own. Um, let them know it's so painful to ask that it's easier to work. Share, number two is shared responsibility whether it's college, uh, whether it's uh, a truck. You know, I'll tell you a story. My, my son wanted to fix up this truck that we had. And it meant replacing the bumpers and the, you know, and I said to him, I, listen, it was about $2,500 worth of stuff, all the LED lights, the cab lights and whatever. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll split it with you because, you know, he's 16. He's not going to get that truck probably until he's 21, 20 or so, second year of college. I said, I'll split it with you because in my mind, I'm improving the value of that truck. Um, it's a it's a healthy, productive thing, but I wasn't going to foot the bill completely. So shared responsibility uh, for college, for things that they want that you think are productive. And then conversations, uh, having conversations. There's nothing wrong with having a conversation. If you, if you don't educate, educate your kids, who is going to educate your kids? So I'm going to talk about some of the truisms and, and really to me, the time to have these conversations are in the car when you're diet driving places and they can't be forced conversations. They have to be conversations that come up from time to time because of some circumstance that happened. And I'll give you some examples. So I'm going to talk about some of the truisms that I told my kids and we're driving in the car because the time to have the, this conversation is not to have it sound like a lecture when they're 18 years old, right? Number one, just because someone looks like they have money doesn't mean they have money. 
Okay. Cause you know, I've heard my, I'll give an example. My son was referring to someone we know and they're in their thirties and you know, how much, how wealthy they are, and, you know, the boats, the cars. And you know, the conversation that I had specifically with him is, you know, Evan, I could buy those things if I wanted. I just choose not to. Um, just because, you know, what you see is not someone's wealth. You see, if you get back to the prodigious accumulators of wealth, and I kind of, you know, if you've actually you followed the formula they give you in the book, I fit into the category. But what my wealth to me is my freedom. You know, I personally don't care what people think of me. You know, I, I may drive a car with 180,000 miles on it. It's a diesel. Um, but I also have, you know, equity in planes. And I fly private when I want, you know, because that's what I do with my freedom and that my money left over. The underaccumulators of wealth are those people who feel like they have to show it, you know. And I remember when I was growing up, we had a teacher down, a teacher and a husband, her husband and these guys, I, I still remember their name. I thought they had so much money because they had the new campers and they had the new trucks. And they probably didn't have near what my parents did. But that was their wealth was to show that. And we all know those people. The problem with that is it's it's not sustainable throughout life. It's hard to accumulate wealth if you're spending all the time. So, you know, that is part of the education. And and it's funny when your kids finally get it. Like I remember, you know, like, wow, we I think my parents actually have a bit because it's not something that you, you know, you show, um, don't get me wrong. You know, we, we have some nice things and, but they've come later in life, you know, once you have it, not once it, not because it's financed. And I remember the story about my, my mother saying to me, you know, you can buy all those things if you take on debt, but dad and I just don't like to have debt. And I told that to my son, I said, you know, son, we have five vehicles, including, Okay, including a very nice car I bought your mom as a gift a couple of years ago. It was a you know five year old Aston Martin convertible, and I said, but we don't have any debt because I that makes me nervous. You know, what if the economy turns and those side of things? And so many of your friends who have those things, you know, and I'm not judging. It's just that you know you can buy them and but then have debt. So. It's important to have these, you know, conversations. And one of the things I always tell my kids is toys, AKA, right? Horses, boats, planes. They are things that you do when you have money left over. They're not things you do to finance, you know? So, so that's the first thing. I think it's important for you to just let your kids know that just because somebody looks like they have money doesn't mean they have money. Number two, because... And this is the thing that really blows my mind. I see so many people that are run around trying to impress people that they can't stand. I mean, how, how backward is that, right? Trying to press your neighbors that you can't stand or, you know, other people. Um, I'm just glad that I really don't care what people think about me. I, you know, I care about what my family thinks of me and, and God, but I don't really don't care about what other people think. Number two, money doesn't make you happy. I think it's important that they understand 
that I remember my son was talking to me about one of his buddies who has six pair of ski, sets of skis and the phones and this. And I happen to know the family. I happen to know that they're probably don't have as, you know, haven't accumulated as much as we have. But we've had this conversation in the car. And I'd said to him, Evan, just because you, I can promise you stuff doesn't make you happy. In fact, I know a lot of people who focus so much on success and, and, and money that if you are driven, really driven and you focus on it, you'll happy. You'll have it. Okay. You'll have it. There's no question that people are driven and focused. They'll have it. But to quote Steve Siebold, someone, you know, I don't want to get a tangent, but I've followed a lot of his work. You know, he tells a story about the guy who's climbing the mountain looking for money and he just his whole work life works so hard for it. And they gets to the top of the mountain and looks over and there's this big gaping hole of unhappiness. So it's important to have that conversation with your kids and let them know that money doesn't money and things don't make you happy and, and have it on, you know, and you have it when the time is right. And the, and the, uh, there's a relevant story. Next thing. Third thing is, Having money is a game you can't win. There's always somebody who has significantly more. And I tell him a story of a friend of mine I knew who had, you know, $50 million and he was always, uh, you know, flaunting what they have. And then, you know, I have another friend who's got probably net worth of about $250 million. It's a silly game and you can't win it. So why try? Why try, like I say, impressing people that you can't stand or people you don't care about, you know? I don't understand it, but, um, you know, I had another friend of mine who sold a company and moved to another state. We went to visit them and we were going out that night and he came down dressed a certain way. And his daughter, who was an adult now, 20 years old, is like, Dad, why are you wearing whatever, whatever? That's not you. And he said, this is interesting, right? He goes, he goes, well, he goes, you know, and mentions her name. He says, you know, mom and I have an image to uphold here. You know, you built a big, beautiful farm. And you know what she said to him? She goes, well, I'm glad you feel that way because I don't. And there has been some distance over that whole thing in, in their family because he clearly feels like he, he needs to show what he has, even though he does have it. But it's a game you're not going to win because there are billionaires out there. So once you understand it, you realize that money is just, a, you know, life is a game and money is just one way to keep track, but it's not going to make you happy. And so item number four, no matter how much you have, okay, you always wish you had a little bit more. Uh, and I had an investment advisor tell me this a long time ago. He said, you know, he goes, I had a woman who was in her late 80s and he said, this was, he gave me this rule of thumb, you know, no matter how much you have, you, you, you always wish you had more. In fact, people who are wealthy don't think they're wealthy. It's another thing that's interesting, right? Truism about wealth. Um, so he told me the story about this one woman who's 80 some years old and he invested a hunk of money into something and they got together a year later and she like doubled it. And here she's 89 years old now, right? She was all excited and she was like, well, you know, do you have any more of those hot tips like that? And he thought it was kind of cute. I thought it was interesting. Here she's eight. How many, how many more years you have, right? And yet, you know, so no matter how much people have, they always wish they had more. 
And it's a natural tendency, right? It's a human tendency to have. Uh, there's also some data now to show that people who are wealthy, quote, wealthy, according by standards, is $10 million, right? Decade, decade, whatever, decade millionaires. Um, people who are wealthy, uh, if you ask them, they don't feel that they're wealthy. That's interesting, too. And that you know what? That holds true even if someone has $100 million. In fact, there's no degree uh, correlation between happiness after $80,000 or $90,000 a year. In other words, if someone up until $80,000, people become happier. And then beyond that, just because someone has no... So money is not correlated with happiness. And I think it's important to have those conversations with your with your children. Item number five, as I mentioned, is, you know, life is a game and, and money is just one way to keep score. Um, there are other ways that are more important in life to keep score. Your health, right? Your health. Uh, how many people do we know that are financially successful that are, they do not have good health life habits, your relationships, your relationships at home, um, or fulfillment from work. And, you know, so if it's just a game that gives us, you know, some freedom, then why do we treat it as a game? And, you know, now that I feel like I'm financially independent in life, I look at business that way too. Business is just a game. In fact, it's a fun game now because I don't feel like, you know, I'm not as stressed out over taking chances. So life is a game. Money's just one way to keep score. Number six is something that's very important to tell your children that our wealth is not yours and you need to figure out this is a message that you give them somewhere between the ages of 12 and 15. Why the data shows that the wealth never makes it past the next generation. Again, I refer you back to the millionaire next door and all the dysfunctional relationships about family, wealth, and dependency. Um, and we see it in our own families. The other thing is the data shows that when you are when money is given to people, it takes away their drive. In other words, people will spend more on a car when the money has been given to them than they will if it's they're spending their own. That's a fact, a statistical fact. Let's think about some other statistical facts that, you know, that are not really healthy to create this life of dependency. So, so say, because I've heard people say, well, my, you know, my family's inheritance, my inheritance. So let's say the life expectancy in a healthy family, especially a professional, is 90 years of age. Do your children really want to wait until they're 70 to do what they want with your money? I mean, I would rather teach my kids if, if they want to have some degree of wealth and success, why not teach them how to do that? when they can enjoy it in their younger years instead of waiting until they're 70. And really the message that we send out to our kids is that our wealth is here really to take care of us, mom and I. And if there's something left over, we're probably going to give it to a worthy cause. And we just don't believe in giving money away. It's not healthy. You know, let's face it. Most of us will do this and we still put our money in trusts, right? And most people do leave significant money to the kids, but to have the family dynamics structured around that. And I've seen it in my own family and I've seen it in other families. You're better off having a healthier family where kids are independent. You know, Warren Buffett, who's a pretty smart guy, right? What does he say? He doesn't believe in leaving more than $50,000 to any one of his kids. Um, so just some proof of this. 
um, you know, my oldest daughter, who's now grateful, when we, she was not happy with me when she was about 17, uh, going on 18 and uh, 19 years of age. She wanted to do, to do her fourth mission trip. Now, I didn't, I funded the first one, but after that, I said, you're on your own. Um, and it, now she thanks me. So I remember her coming into my study. She was going to do one, do her like fourth mission trip. And I said, Kate, here's the deal. Um, you have a very expensive education coming up now. You've been accepted to this program, CN Albany Med. You're going to go to medical school. You got to figure out how to pay for, you know, and she stomped out of my office and she was upset with me. And she was like, this is all I want to do, you know, is do these mission trips. And I said to her, look, at this point, I view it as expensive fun. You don't need to go paint another church. You know, you don't need to sit and read stories to some kids somewhere. You need to figure out how to pay for your education. And I remember her saying something like, you know, I don't need all this, referring to, you know, our home we had and what we have. And I said to her, that's fine, because all of this is not yours. All of this is ours. And you guys have to figure out how to take care of yourself growing up. Well, fast forward, she's now, now thanks me. Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you so much for teaching us. In fact, my son-in-law has said to me, you know, since I, cause I had them both read the millionaire next door, they both have said to me, um, and he said to me, I'm so glad that you, you know, taught me about not having, you know, the millionaire next door and becoming financially independent because I see it in my family and I see it in my culture, the strings attached to gifts and the, um, the importance of becoming, you know, saving and becoming financially independent. So I don't, I'm not encumbered by the strings associated with gifts and the family dynamic. So taking it a step further to kind of conclude, let's face it, statistically money doesn't make it past the next generation. If you want to give something to your kids, you know, give it to them, give it to them in a trust, do whatever. But the most important thing you can do is to give them an education and start talking about it um, early. Um, and, what I think is important, if you can give your kids an education, again, where there's some shared responsibility, that's very, very important because let's face it, what can you give your kid better than an education is going to give them a leg up? But it doesn't mean you need to give it to them on a silver platter or they're going to, we're going to, they're going to, you're going to take away their drive. So that's it for, you know, how do we help raise financially independent children? I think it's so important. If you look at our society, it is it, just just look around where people are too generous to their kids. And I think really what it is, it's a product to some degree, right? What they say is that we become a product of our success. We don't want to see our kids work and struggle. And I got to tell you, um, as a parent, it's painful. You know, there are times when I know that, you know, um, I just want to give my kids more money, just give them some money, um, but it doesn't help them. It doesn't help them learn those hard lessons in life. And you're taking away their drive. So start early. Don't be afraid to talk about it. And hopefully you found this podcast useful. Leave me some comments, thoughts. If you're looking for any more information on how to become an, a, a more astute, aesthetic business person, check out the other podcasts. Uh, send for the book. Read the blogs. And um, I appreciate you listening to me. Hope you have an awesome day. and. Um, Thank you.